the house of the Lord. And again, if you're joining us online, welcome. We miss you, and uh, we're glad that you're with us. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 7 as we finish the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is, of course, Jesus' longest recorded sermon. Uh, you have homework this week. I know you didn't plan on it, but you do. And your homework is this. Go back and read through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Read through and, and just, you know, all that we've covered, which has been a lot in these last number of weeks, seven weeks or so, uh, just let the Lord just refresh you with what he's been passing along to us here. Well, let's read beginning. I want to go back up just a little bit, uh, pick it up in verse 13. Pastor Mitch covered down to verse 14 last week, and I'm going to say this every time like a broken record player. Um, I, I love him so much. He's a, he's a great teacher. I love listening to him. And so uh, if you missed the message last week, go back and listen to it. It's on the website, it's in the app, and uh, it's great teaching. So we are in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. We'll read down to the end. And the word of God reads as follows. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, but narrow, excuse me, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not Bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the, the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and it's, excuse me, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Lord, this is your word to us today, and may our hearts and our minds be attentive to all that you have for us as we, we look and we listen and we wait. Speak, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing the Sermon on the Mount has certainly taught us and has been reinforcing to us is that being a Christian 
<clears throat> which is a term that came to us in the book of Acts, being Christ followers is about one thing <clears throat> and about one thing only. And that's about being in fellowship with God. It's about having a right relationship with God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in and through and by the deposit of the Holy Spirit who is in our lives and the Spirit of God using the Word of God to, to speak to us from the heart of God. You see, the Christian life is about fellowship with God. It's not about religion. It's not about rules. It's not about fitting into certain groups, certain cliques. It's about being in fellowship with God. And the beauty of the body of Christ is that all of us who are known by the name of Christ and who know him, who truly know him, and today is going to be a dividing line where we find out who truly knows him and who doesn't. If you truly know him, then you love him. And you know that you love him because he first loved you. This book tells us of his great love for us. And so I pray today that your fellowship with God will be enriched. And if there's anything in here that is convicting and concerning, that we would take it to heart as we should anytime scripture speaks to us and sort of pricks our conscience or sort of warns us about something. Maybe there's an opportunity today, if, if necessary, to repent of certain things that we might walk more closely with him. You see, sometimes in our in our lives, and our parenting, and our experience as children, we experience discipline and correction in a very, very negative way. But you see, the Lord, the discipline of the Lord that's described to us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12, talks to us about that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And any loving father will discipline his children. Discipline means both to bring instruction, which is correction, but also to point them to and put them on the right path. So the discipline of the Lord in our lives, while it certainly can have a negative connotation if we're in a bad place, most often for us who are his children and who know him, it's a corrective and instructive thing. It's something that any loving parent would do with their children. And this is a challenging and a difficult passage this morning. Well, let's start out by considering both what we looked at last week and what we're looking at today. And I think a lot of this passage is about the cost to follow Jesus. What does it cost us to follow Jesus? Do you realize that there are two realms and those two realms are heaven and earth? Uh, Jesus said to us back in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for he, he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Do you realize that in these two realms, heaven and earth, there's the temporal and the eternal? On earth is the temporal. These are the things that will pass away. These are the things that will burn. These are the things you cannot take with you when you die. These are the things that others will inherit and fight over after your death. These things have no eternal significance. It's only in the eternal realm, in the heavenly realm, that we have value to God. And one day we will be with him. Here on this earth, we are his, his servants. <clears throat> he wants to use us for his glory. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far 
more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So there's two realms, heaven and earth, the temporal and the eternal. But this passage is going to tell us about two ways, the narrow way and the broad way that that we finished up with last week in verses 13 and 14. (coughs) Excuse me. We're also going to discover that there are two types of prophets, true prophets and false prophets. We will discover that there are two kinds of trees, trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad fruit. We will discover that there are two kinds of confessions, the confession of those who truly worship and follow Jesus and those who only pay him lip service. And then we're also going to find out that that there are two kinds of builders, the builders who build on the rock, which is obedience to the word of God, and those who build on the sand. And both houses look the same to the human eye because we can't see the foundation, can we? But in God's economy, God knows, and he will reveal those things. So as we get into it this morning, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Pastor Mitch covered that incredibly well last week, but the one thing I want to say about it is this. This ought to be both a sobering and a troubling statement, and indeed it is. There's two gates, a narrow gate and a broad or a wide gate. And most people want the broad or the the wide way because it's easier. But clearly in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is saying the narrow way is eternal life. The narrow way is the exclusive way. And as Pastor Mitch referred to last week from John chapter 14, a passage we know all, all well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He is the narrow way. He said in John 10 that he was the gate. He was the sheep gate that we must enter. But so many people want the wide gate, the wide way. And notice what he said at the end of verse 14. And there are few who find it. That's troubling, isn't it? That's disturbing, When we think about those people, especially that we know in our lives that we're praying for, and you should pray for them. Don't give up as long as it's called today, as long as there's breath. Pray for them. Pray that they might come to know Christ. But then there's a couple of questions I want us to consider sort of in the back of our minds as we go through this this morning. The first question is this. When you came to know Christ... Did your profession of faith in Jesus cost you anything? Let me say it again. Did your profession of faith in Jesus cost you anything? Meaning, did you have to leave anything behind? Did you have to turn from old ways, from old paths, to follow the narrow way? I think, legitimately speaking, to follow Christ, it does cost you something. Because if you're going to walk on the narrow way... You're going to have to make a decision that costs you something about those who walk on the wide path. And that's the pull of the world, isn't it? If we're walking the narrow path and the rest of the world is walking on the wide path, 
if they've entered on that wide gate and they're walking on the wide path and there's going to be that constant pull, hey man, look at all the stuff you can't do, look at all the stuff we can do, and what, you know, you're, you're just a fuddy-duddy, you're, you're no fun, and you know, your faith in Jesus cost you too much. You got to live and have gusto and enjoy life. Live for today. Did your profession of faith in Jesus cost you anything? Second question, did my decision for Christ change my life? Is my life different? Because I say I believe in Jesus and I love him and I know he loves me and he set his mark upon me and I'm his son, I'm his daughter. These two things ought to bother us a little bit as we continue on. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What do we learn about false prophets? Well, one thing's for sure. The false prophets tell you the wide way is cool. The false prophets don't give you the whole truth. The false prophets only give you partial truth. And there's scenarios out there where there are false teachers, false prophets who give you 99% truth and 1% error, which is just as bad as 99% falsehood and 1% truth. Anything short of 100% truth is false. Jesus says here, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They are ravenous wolves. First thing we need to understand, as the illustration goes, that uh, Jesus is our shepherd and we are his sheep. Sheep do not eat sheep, do they? Do you see any sheep gathered around a little pit with another sheep on a spit roasting over the fire? No, you don't see that. You're going to see a wolf, though, with a sheep off to the side that he's He's gotten as, as his prey, and he's over there ripping it to shreds in a very vulgar and a vile manner. And Jesus says that these false prophets who come to you, they're in sheep's clothing. They pretend to be sheep. They pretend to be one of you, one of me, one of us. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Jesus exposes their motive. And he says, you will know them by their fruits. Now, last week... In the beginning of the chapter, Pastor Mitch went through, judge not lest you be judged, and he did a masterful job at helping us understand what that means. There's improper judging where we try to judge people's motives, and I think another way of saying uh, the improper kind of judging is to say having a critical spirit, where we find fault with something that someone does, and we become the judge, the jury, and the executioner, don't we? As we look at them and say, oh, look at them. Look at how they take care of their kids. Look at what they do or they don't do. Or look at how they keep their house or, you know, whatever. We can find a million things to judge people for, right? So there's the improper kind of judgment that we covered last week. But this is the proper kind of judgment that we are to have discernment about, to have wisdom about. That, again, that we were taught about last week. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Of course not. We get grapes from a grapevine or figs from thistles. No, we get figs from a fig tree. Wolves eat sheep because they are predators. 
Now this thing that Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 7 has been said to us in many places throughout Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus as he was traveling back to Jerusalem, he said this to them. And the Ephesian elders were there. This is the church of Ephesus, the leaders of the church of Ephesus. Here's what he said to them, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Sounds strikingly like what Jesus said. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And this is one of the hallmarks of a false teacher, of a false prophet. They want their own following. You see, they sort of masquerade as we're, we're, we're here on behalf of God. We're representatives of God. But in reality, they want their own following. And we know them because they are trying to take advantage of the sheep. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said this, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And their works is what Jesus is calling here in this passage, the fruit of these people. Second Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, speaking of the Old Testament, even as there will be false teachers among you now in the New Testament, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord. These are people who come in and they twist the truth and then they tell you that Jesus is not God. There's people out there, the the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible that we know. He's not the Son of God. He's the brother of Lucifer, the brother of Satan. Or he's another man born in the flesh and he had no divine qualities. And they find ways to twist who Jesus was or is. And many, Peter says, follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And these false teachers cause a reproach on the name of Christ because they've created this controversy within the church. In Matthew chapter 24, later, Jesus will tell us about the last days. He says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. These false prophets will play into the lawlessness. You see, there will not be a holiness. There will not be a separation unto the Lord. There will be a marrying with the world. And this is false doctrine. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul there is talking about the coming of the Antichrist, and he says this, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So even in that day, Satan's emissaries, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, they will be able to do miraculous things, and in so doing will convince people that they are of God. In 2 Thessalonians 10, continuing with that, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, continuing with that thought, he says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, listen, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so 
Jesus is pointing to something here when he talks about these false prophets. You see, they are not saved. They don't know Christ. These are not people who are believers who might have been deceived. These are people who don't know Christ, period. And they are under the influence of Satan, and they have infiltrated the church. Jesus says, in a very troubling way, beware of false prophets, that they will come and they will be among you. Now, how do we handle false prophets and false teachers? One commentator said this, What is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, it is the regular study of the Word of God with prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The Bible was given to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. The man who reads it aright will never be allowed greatly to err. It is neglect of the Bible which makes so many a prey to the false teacher or the false prophet. They would have us believe that they are not learned and do not pretend to have decided opinions. And the plain truth is that they are lazy and idle about reading the Bible and they do not like the trouble of thinking for themselves. Nothing supplies false prophets with followers so much as spiritual sloth under a cloak of humility. Meaning, we, we say to ourselves, well, I don't, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. You know what? Nobody, when they read through the Bible the first time, understands it. But I submit to you, there's only one book in all of history that you need to read over and over and over, and it's this book. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a book that you read, you know, not the Bible, but a book, a fiction book or whatever, and you read it and you thought, man, that was so good, I'm going to read it again. I've done that before, not many times. But this is the only book that we need to read constantly and repetitively from cover to cover. Because not knowing the scriptures, and I'm not talking about being a scholar, I'm just talking about being familiar. Just read the word of God and let God speak to us. By doing that, by being familiar with God's word, then, then we know the true thing. You see, treasury agents, when they're preparing for their, their duties, in the U.S. Treasury or the Secret Service, they study the real thing. They don't study all the counterfeits. They just know the real thing. That way they know when something is false or counterfeit when they see it because they know the real thing so well. And so it should be for us. How do we handle false prophets? First, we know the Bible. Secondly, we be aware that they do exist, and they do. We cannot deny that. We keep our ears and our eyes open. We have this beautiful verse in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where it says that the Bereans <clears throat> were more noble-minded because they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. And what it's talking about there is that when people were sitting and listening to the teaching of the word of God, <clears throat> they had their Bibles open. And they didn't accept it just because someone stood here in this position and said it and go, well, the pastor said it, so it must be true. No, no, no. You have to be careful about what you allow into your head and your heart and your mind. Your filter, your hearing aids, if you will, is the Word of God. The lenses in your glasses is the Word of God. How do we handle false prophets? We know the Bible. We be aware that they exist. We keep our eyes and our ears open, and then we understand that there's this thing called the inward and the outward. You see, on the outside... False prophets look real. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They baa like a sheep. 
They smell like a sheep. But inwardly, they are not a sheep. And we can all see the outward and be deceived. There are many pretenders and actors and hypocrites and counterfeits out there, but who can see the inward? Who can judge the motives? We talked about this last week. Who? The Lord. Only God. You see, God has given us something, though, to help us along this path. He's given us, as he just talked about, the fruit. We can't see the inward. We can't see the heart. We can't see the motive. But we can see the fruit. We can see the fruit of a person's life and ministry, and that is what we should see. Now, a personal note here, I don't like the term fruit inspectors. I've heard that term used before, and I think it gives us a false sense of superiority thinking, well, you know, my job is to listen to all the false teachers and create a website and declare who's true and who's not. Now, there's some helpful resources out there. But I think this too easily morphs into an unhealthy type of judging that was mentioned back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. You know, we are to spend our time judging people. We are to be aware through the fruit of the the false teachers of what's happening. But we are to live our lives laser focused on Jesus, not on the false teacher. We don't spend our time laser focused on all the schemes and the wiles of Satan. We spend our time focused on Jesus. We are to be, in my opinion, fruit observers or fruit watchers, but not fruit inspectors because their fruit, their life, the result of their life in ministry is an indication to us of who they are and of what sort they are. In fact, it's interesting, this word sort is used a few times in the scriptures to tell us that the the quality of someone's life or fruit is very important. 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Is it unto the Lord or not? 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul is talking to his protege Timothy about a couple of people who are causing trouble in the body of Christ, and he says, and their message will spread like cancer, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. People who are causing trouble in the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.16 For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. You see, the fruit has a quality to it. And the quality is either good or bad. So as he talks about these false prophets, he goes on to further qualify them by illustrating them through two trees. Excuse me, verses 17 and 20, good trees and bad trees, 17 through 20. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So here's what he's telling us. You ready? You might want to write this down. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. And this illustration of the two trees 
is the illustration of the false prophets, the false teachers. There is a fruit that comes from a person's ministry, that comes from a person's life. You say, well, that's great, that sounds good, but what is the fruit? <clears throat> Thankfully, the Bible defines that for us, doesn't it? First of all, the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. We find this in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If this is the fruit of someone's ministry, then it's the good kind of fruit. We also find fruit referred to in John chapter 15. <clears throat> That's the great abiding passage where Jesus uses the illustration that he is the vine and his father is the vine dresser. And in John chapter 15, verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You see, the fruit has a quality to it, and the quality comes from God himself. Why? Because as I said at the beginning, it's about relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about fellowship with God. And a person who is saved, who knows God, who's connected to the vine, who's abiding in Christ, will produce this kind of fruit. Not by trying, but by being. By being connected to God. By being in the Word. By praying. By seeking the Lord. We talked about it last week. Ask, seek, and knock. And the tenses there really would read, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. Stay close to God. And then there's this thing called the fruit of the ministry, and I can illustrate this in a couple of places. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, speaking of the Philippian church, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown... You see, the Philippian people were the fruit of his ministry. In 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul said this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? That's the kind of fruit Paul wanted. People whose lives were redeemed, who were redeemed by preaching the gospel and teaching them the word of God, that's the kind of fruit that you're looking for. And he says, for you are our glory and our joy. John said in 3 John chapter 1, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that's in you, just as you walk in the truth, and I have no greater joy than, than to hear that my children walk in truth, the fruit of the ministry. So this fruit that comes from them, from these trees, <clears throat> the good trees, the good prophets, the bad trees, the bad teachers. It's very easily uh, laid out for us here. And the Lord wants us to know that it's pretty easy by looking at the fruit to see what these people are like and what their ministries are like. Now he comes to two confessions in verse 21, those who worship Jesus and those who don't worship Jesus those who truly are believers and those who are not. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is just as troubling as the, the narrow way and the wide path, isn't it? What this is saying here is that there are people who are sitting in churches who think they're believers who are deceived and are not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that term, Lord, Lord, is just a word that means that Jesus is my, my Lord, my Savior, my King. He's, he's, he's the one I serve. I bow to him. I follow him. He says, many will say to me in that day, and we'll come to back, back to that in a moment, what is that day? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, have, have we not done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. And the Greek there would indicate to us, I never, ever knew you. He's saying, I never had a relationship with you, and you never had a relationship with me. So these are people who are deceived, terribly deceived. I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice here that not all who profess and call themselves Christians are truly saved, number one. Number two... Jesus didn't say here, uh, you know, those who say, say he said, he said you, you say to me, Lord, Lord. He didn't say God. He didn't say Yahweh. He didn't say the Father. He says me. So Jesus is telling us here something very important in these verses. Not everyone who says to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Jesus is saying he's the judge, isn't he? He's going to be the one judging people at the end of the age. You know, we must all appear before Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Jesus is speaking. He truly is the Lord. Now, note that these people who do not know Jesus, note, note what they were actually able to do in this life. They had a very impressive spiritual resume, didn't they? Look again. <laughs> We have prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons. We've done many wonders, many miracles, many signs in your name. We did these things, Lord, for you. Jesus says, it's not of works. Well-meaning people can do works, can't they? There are false miracles. Remember the priests of Pharaoh? When Moses was before Pharaoh saying, let my people go, and God through, through Moses did those incredible signs and wonders. But remember how the priests, the pagan priests of Pharaoh did counterfeit works. Moses threw his staff down and it became a serpent. They threw their staffs down, it, they became a serpent. There are people who are able to do false signs and miracles. What about Judas who was with Jesus and his disciples for three years. You remember, uh, <clears throat> Judas was trusted. They let him carry the money box. And then remember, there were two times Jesus sent out his disciples to preach and to minister, once just the 12, two by two. And then a second time he sent out the seven, he sent out 70 disciples, the, the 12 apostles were among those. So there were two basically missionary journeys that Jesus sent his disciples and his apostles out on. And Judas was among them, and Judas was out knocking on doors, preaching the gospel. And yet we know, 
at the Lord's Supper, he betrayed Jesus, right? He says, and, and yet one of you is a devil sitting at this table with me. And they said, who is it, Lord? And he says, the one who dips in the sop with me. And of course, Judas did that, and he ran out, and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So there was false preaching with Judas, false miracles through the priests of Pharaoh. False prophesying. Remember the story of Balaam and the donkey? Remember Balak, the king, wanted Balaam to bless him and to be a prophet of the Lord and to tell him ultimately how to, how to take advantage of the, the Jews, the Israelites. And every time Balaam tried to do it because the, the king was offering him this incredible sum of money, what did he do? He'd open his mouth to, to prophesy something evil and the Lord would make good things come out of his mouth. And it came, became so bad for Balaam that he's on his donkey and remember, the Lord had to put an angel in front of the donkey, and then the Lord spoke to the donkey, and the donkey spoke to the prophet because the prophet couldn't hear the voice of the Lord. There was false prophesying going on through Balaam. Remember in Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer, he was a man who came and saw the disciples. He was involved in sorcery, the black arts, and he saw what they were doing, the wonders and the miracles, and it would appear as you read Acts 8 that he got saved, but he was still rooted in his past and that he wanted to, to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from them so that he could work the same kind of miracles. And Peter said, your money perish with you. You can't do that. I see that you were poisoned and bound by iniquity and by bitterness. And Simon the sorcerer wanted that gift. And then we also find out in Acts chapter 19, which is something you should go read. It's an incredible story if you've never read it. In Acts chapter 19, there's, there were two groups of people, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, and then there were the seven sons of Siva. And as we go read that, we don't have time for that now. In Acts 19, 13 through 20, you find out that there were Jewish exorcists who were traveling around and they were saying, and I'm reading it here from verse 13 of chapter 19, we exercise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. You see, they didn't know the Lord, but they were trying to get in on some action and make some money by exercising demons in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And apparently it was happening. And then there was these seven sons of Siva who uh, Siva was a Jewish chief priest, and they also were trying to do the same thing. And then they went and they tried to command an evil spirit and said, oh, we, we can do this. We've, we've observed it. We know how they hold their hands and the inflection in their voice, and we've seen how this works. And so they spoke to this demon, and it says, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know, but who are you? And it says he came out and he leapt upon them, and this is my, my wonderful, I just came from the south, so you got to excuse me, but he gave him a good old-fashioned southern whooping. The demons came out and got a hold of these guys, and, but they were trying to impersonate good prophets. They were trying to do a good thing in the power of the flesh, and they weren't believers. They didn't know Christ. So it's possible for these things to happen for people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And maybe they did. The scary thing is, how in the world did they have any success whatsoever? But they did. And Jesus says, look, you can be deceived by signs and wonders and false prophets. Don't be thinking that because you watch, for example, an illusionist on TV and you go, wow, that was incredible. How'd they do that? You see, false prophets can do the same thing in the name of Christ and make you think that they just healed somebody. 
Or they did some amazing thing, and then, of course, what do they do? They, they prey on the sheep, and they say, you know, because of this incredible ministry that God's given us, we're in such demand, and we need a jet. And uh, I need to graduate from a Volkswagen to a Bentley, and you need to fund it, so we're going to have a second offering and a third offering, and we need all this stuff from you. And then the false prophets begin to prey on the sheep. But Jesus is saying that on that day, he will be the judge. What day? I don't know if you know this, but there are two judgments. The first judgment is the Bema seat of Christ. We find this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is the day when the believers in Jesus Christ will appear before the Lord himself, and we will receive righteous rewards. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the idea there of the Bema seat of Christ is the Bema seat was what was uh, used in the Greek Olympics, right? When some, the, the people would go and they would stand on the three-tiered uh, pedestal and the one in the middle would get the gold and then there's the bronze and the silver. And that, that place that they appeared before was the Bema seat. And so it's to receive the rewards of what was done. But then there's another judgment <clears throat> that's found in Revelation 20. Now the Bema seat of Christ, again, is for believers only. In Revelation chapter 20, there is the great white throne judgment. Everybody will appear before Jesus, the believers at the Bema seat of Christ or everybody else before the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne and him, that is Jesus, who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place before, uh, for them. And then it goes on and describes what happens. And the books were opened, and they were judged. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's a terrible thing. What do we do with this? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to find out whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? You should know that. If Christ is in you, you should know that. You say, how do, how do I know? He's in you. When you get saved, when you believe in Christ, that very moment, God sends the Holy Spirit into your life. Galatians 6.3, Paul says, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If we truly have the Holy Spirit, there will be a, an attitude of, of humility in our lives. In Galatians 6, 4, he says, but let each one examine his own work. You see, rather than pointing the finger and judging, let us look at our own work before God. 2 Peter 1, 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, if we sit before God with our Bible open and maybe even get on our knees, you'll know the Lord will commune with you. The Lord knows those who are his. And you know what? Those of us who are his, we know him. Remember again, John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Do you hear his voice? I can tell you this, every time I sit down to read the word, I feel like I need way more time than I have. When I finish reading, I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. I want to hear him. 
I wish I could get paid to read the Bible. Right? Wouldn't that be a great job? Read the Bible and then just minister in his name? That would be like the ideal job. We don't want to be deceived. Well, as we try to wrap this up here, Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. I can't imagine a more terrifying thing from the lips of Jesus to me or to you. There was a similar kind of thing that happened back in the Old Testament. And this, this story is found in the book of Judges chapter 16. Maybe you remember the story of Samson. This point came in Samson's life because he kept flirting with the edge. He was a prophet of the Lord. He was one whom God had used and blessed. And even though Samson had this sort of edge to him where he was constantly sort of testing the Lord, remember he began to mess around with this woman, Delilah. And she kept trying to find out the secret to his strength. And he kept messing with her. A little game of cat and mouse. She thought she was going to get him to confess and then he would tell her a lie and then she would try it and then he would you know, bust out of the chains or whatever they put him in and kind of laugh at them and mock them. But he was basically in the den of Satan playing with fire. And the day came, verse, Judges chapter 16, verse 19, where she lulled him to sleep on her knees. And she called for a man and had him shave off his seven lock, the seven locks of his head because he had taken a Nazarite vow. And he said, my strength is because I've taken this vow to the Lord and my hair's long. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before in his pride at other times and shake myself free. But here's the tragedy. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That is so tragic. I never want to be in that place where those words could be uttered of me, and neither do you. Which is the equivalent of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you, I never ever knew you. Now Samson, of course, in, in that story, the Lord, you know, Samson repented and the Lord gave him strength to bring judgment on the enemies of God. But in that situation, that's how far Samson had fallen. I can't imagine walking through life as a believer in Christ and, and then I'm, you know, God left me and I'm just on my own and I don't even know it. Here's the frightening thing to me, to think that a church can do church and there's no Holy Spirit. There's no Jesus. How can that be? These are frightening things to consider. You see, all true believers must declare that Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus was saying there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, who don't know him. But you understand something, don't you? We must call him Lord. Every one of us who know the name of, of Christ, who say that I'm, I, I've been saved, I've come to Christ, we must call him Lord. We must say Lord, Lord to him, but not in the false way, in the true way, in the God-honoring way. We want to honor him. We want our declaration to be a true declaration, not a false declaration. We want to worship Jesus. We want it to come from the heart. Uh, we want it to be born of a genuine salvation, a genuine gratitude. We can say of these people that they were never saved. Jesus says as much. They never believed. They were never converted. 
what do we do with this now? How do we make sense of this? This Jesus saying in that day, there will be some who call me Lord, Lord, but they, they even did things in the church and in my name. They worked these wonders, these miracles, these signs. They cast out demons. How can that be? Well, there's a story we're going to get to in a few weeks. It's in Matthew chapter 13. It's right after the parable of the sower and the soils. And here's what it says. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. The tares were fake wheat, if you will. So the servants of the owner came and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Or if I may be so bold, how is it that you have people who call Jesus Lord, Lord, and work miracles and do all these things in the name of Jesus? But they're not true. They're not real. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And Jesus said, in the parable, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's what we just talked about. Appearing before the Bema seat of Christ versus the great white throne judgment. And then finally, he says here, two builders, wise and foolish, Therefore, verse 24 of Matthew 7, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Do you understand there's a commonality here? There's, there's wolves in sheep's clothing. They look real to us. There's trees that bear fruit. The trees may look the same, but the fruit's different. There's good fruit and bad fruit. Now there's two types of buildings, two types of houses. Both look good, but what you can't see is the foundation. And these, he's saying, these sayings of mine, Jesus is saying, what I've been saying to you now from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as we understand it, you've heard all this. He says, whoever does them, whoever obeys, whoever heeds my word and takes it to heart, whoever believes these things, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it didn't fall for it was founded on the rock. Now, let me tell you something. I've seen this in my life people who know Christ, who are true believers. And it doesn't say we, we don't get discouraged or anything like that. Of course we do. But when the storms come, when major things come, when a tragedy strikes, when cancer happens, when major terrible things happen in our lives, they don't fall apart. You know why? Because their house is built on the rock. Because they have believed the word of God. The word of God is true. Everything that's written in here is for me, and it's yes and amen. But then there's people I've seen, whether believers or not, I have to leave that in God's hands, who I thought were believers, who I thought were walking with God and had a relationship with him and were strong, and something happens, tragedy strikes, and they fall apart and they completely lose it. 
And I've seen people walk away from Christ over, well, God didn't keep me from getting cancer or whatever their issue was. Can we be so naive as to live like that? Did you hear what Job said? This is why we read the Bible, right? Job said, shall I accept good from the hand of the Lord and not also evil? I trust him. So here we are with these people who have built on the rock or built on the sand. And he says, when it falls, great was its fall. So the issue here is obedience to the words of Jesus. It's hearing and acting. It's, it's hearing and believing. It's obeying his words versus not obeying his words. And remember, James said this so poignantly. James chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You see, if we are not doing but we're only hearing, then we are living in deception. We're thinking we're okay because we show up at church or because we listen to Christian music, but there is no fruit to our lives. You see, if there's no fruit, if there's no substance, then we have to question the reality of our profession. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. What is he saying? Your faith is real. You truly do know Christ. Now, throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Jesus said over and over and over, take heed, watch, take heed, take heed, take heed to yourselves, take heed that you not be deceived, take heed to yourselves, take heed, watch, and pray. These are things that we need to do on a continual, regular basis. The man or woman who hears Christian teaching and never gets beyond hearing is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He satisfies himself with listening and approving, but goes no further. He flatters himself, perhaps, that all is right with his soul because he has feelings and convictions and desires of a spiritual kind. In these things he rests. He never really breaks off from sin and casts aside the spirit of the world. He never really lays a hold of Christ. He never really takes up his cross. He is a hearer of the truth, but nothing more. Those are sobering words. Now, as Jesus said all these things to these people, it says in verses 28 and 29, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You understand the scribes and the Pharisees, their authority was based on somebody else, meaning what they did is they always quoted other people. They never taught the word of God. They just said, Rabbi so-and-so said this about that. But they never said the word of God says. You see, they were not people who had been affected and infected by the word of God. They were people who coldly knew the facts and the truth. They could quote the scriptures but the scriptures had never infiltrated their hearts. And that is a frightening thing, isn't it? So as Jesus has brought the Sermon on the Mount to a close, he made it 
deeply personal, didn't it? He said, listen, there, there's the possibility out there of people who think they know Christ and who are not, who are self-deceived. And I think he wanted them and he wants us, he wants everyone who reads the Sermon on the Mount to know that there has to be a quality to our lives. How do I know if I'm a true, genuine believer and follower of Jesus? Let me just ask you this question. Do you, know, do you love him? Do you love him? Do you have a desire in your life now that you've come to know him? Whenever your profession of faith was, whenever it was that you got saved, whenever your spiritual birthday was, did something happen to you? Was your heart changed? Do you think differently? <clears throat> do you understand right and wrong? I'm not talking about from a pure morals point of view, but do you understand right and wrong from God's point of view? Do you have a desire to do the right thing? Do you have a desire to follow Jesus? Do you have a desire to follow Jesus no matter what the cost? You see, if you love him and if he's touched you, then your life is different. You're different. And you can never go back. You've believed the gospel. <clears throat> You've believed in Jesus. You know that your sins are forgiven. You know that he loves you. You know that the cross was for you. And you know <clears throat> that you are changed and you are forever different because of what he did for you on the cross. Amen to that. Now, if you don't have that <clears throat> excuse me, assurance, if you don't have that knowledge, that sense of your relationship with him and his relationship with you, then maybe you need to do something very simple, and there's no shame in this. As we pray right now and we, get, we prepare our hearts for communion, just say, Lord, I don't know, I'm unsure, so I just I want to come to you right now, and I just I want to invite you into my life. I want it to be real. Lord, would you do this work in my life? I need you, Lord. And trust me, he will do it. He will do it. He said he would do it. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask the Lord. He is gracious and merciful. He wants to bless you. He wants to come into your life and my life. He wants to forgive your sin. He wants you to be a different person. He wants you to be marked by the love of God. How we need that. So let's pray. <clears throat> let's ask the Lord to work among us this morning. Let's ask him to do the miracle of salvation in our lives if he has not already done so. Lord, we love you, <clears throat> and we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross and that you died for me, you died for us. And it was personal, it wasn't general. And you took away my sin, Lord. And for those of us who know you this morning, who are confident and assured, we just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. We love you. And for those of us this morning, Lord, who maybe are unsure, who don't know, then, Lord, this morning, bring for them assurance of their salvation. He who has been set free has been set free in indeed. So as they pray right now, and they just ask you, Lord, just to make it sure, make it real to them. Lord, make it real. Let your Holy Spirit come in and cleanse them. Give them that confirmation that you are now present in their lives, that you will never leave or forsake them. Give them that witness of the Spirit in their lives.
May the Spirit take the word of God and bear witness of the presence of God. And may we, Lord, be changed people. May we be different. May you be free to bear your fruit in our lives. And may we not resist. May we freely open our lives and our hearts. And may you do these things, Lord, in us. God, we love you. We bless you. This morning as we come to the table, would you do a wonderful thing? Would you remind us of how much you love us? And Lord, may we be able to say, Lord, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen.